it's time for another episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. Today, Marty and Tony will review Stellar, Atlantis Rising, and The Shining. Then, they will discuss the importance of expansions in the board game industry. Red Rom. Wait, what did you say? I didn't say anything. Welcome back to another edition of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is episode number 192. That's eight from 200, baby. The name of this one is Here Comes the Flood. And no, I'm not talking about a flood of emotions because I'm back home. This is Tony. And this is Marty. I'm glad to see you back in your regular recording studio. But I must say, Marty, the recording's going to be a bit boring because the Moscato is not flowing at the house. <laughs> Well, you know you can go buy that stuff if you want it. And we have a grocery store around here called Aldi's, and it sells for $3. I don't know how good it is, but my wife goes, do you want this? I'm like, no, I don't want this. I don't need this. It's not free. I'm buying it. At the hotel, it was free. There is a difference for me. If it's free, it's me. I can't help it. I'm just happy to be back in the house recording in the plush studios of the bedroom, getting ready to make a little bit more magic happen. The title of this episode is from a Peter Gabriel song. That was a pretty deep cut. So I got a quick question for you. Yeah. Do you prefer Peter Gabriel Genesis or post-Peter Gabriel Genesis? Well, you know, I was going to ask you the same question. So good job on reading my mind. I prefer post. How about you? So I like Phil Collins' voice better, but their really proggy stuff was Peter Gabriel era. Would you say they're really what? Proggy? Proggy stuff. What is that? Progressive rock. Oh, see? Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted you were saying. So I like their proggy stuff, which is typically around the Peter Gabriel era right at the end of it. And then they went more poppy. In the 80s, they went heavy. But remember when we were in college and it was, uh, what was the song they played over and Invisible over again on MTV? Touch, yeah. Land of Confusion. Oh. I got so sick of that video with the puppets. Yes, yes. And Reagan waking up all sweaty and drenched and uh, making fun of him because of Bonzo. Oh, my God. For those of you who don't it, know what we're talking about, MTV, when it played videos. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be this really popular cable channel called music television where they did this thing where they played music videos like 24 hours a day it was amazing the invisible touch enjoyed that song but yes i I prefer phil collins over peter gabriel i I see see the gabriel area era seemed weird to me it was it it was coming out of the late 60s early 70s so it was a lot of psychedelic stuff definitely more the the proggy type stuff uh but i like the mid 70s to late 70s genesis which was like actually right after peter gabriel i think their first album after peter gabriel it was and then there were three and i'll give you credit if you can name the other two members uh um mike mike rutherford and tony banks holy cow and you weren't even looking at that i'm proud of you thank you nice job nice job well don't you remember when we had the apartment and we would pick my bunch of cds that i had over 100 cds compact discs for those that don't know (laughs) what what a cd is from that time i had i guess close to eight genesis and they were all post gabriel era so i knew uh anderson break uh what was it anderson Bradford Wakeman, Bruford, and, Wakeman and Howe. Howe. That was a great. I enjoyed that album too. So yeah, which was basically yes minus. Oh my gosh, the bass player and Mike and the Mechanics and now that was you know that was Mike Rutherford right, right from that Genesis. Was Mike Rutherford. See, I meant to say Mike and the Mechanics when I started to say the Anderson, but never mind. Chris Squire. 
Chris Squire was the bassist I was trying to think of. Oh, and do you know who the lead singer was? One of the lead singers was of Mike and the Mechanics? Uh, other than Mike, I forget. I used to. Mike was not the lead singer. Do you remember the band called Squeeze and the song Tempted by the Fruit of Another? Yes. Uh, the lead singer from them became one of the lead singers on Mike and the Mechanics. Oh, okay. And I think Mike and the Mechanics, I, I'm sure I'm wrong. I think they did three albums. The first one was the big one. Second one, okay. And maybe, and I don't know if they've tried to revamp. I, I, you know, I'm surprised they're not on tour. Phil Collins is. Why not the rest of them? That guy from Squeeze, I mentioned he passed away. Oh, Okay, well, he shouldn't be on tour. Right. I had the Mike and the Mechanics Greatest Hits was actually a good album. Hey, since we're on music news, so one of the favorite things I love to listen to is this uh, guy named Christian Hand who takes music and breaks down a song based on the tracks. And there is a whole podcast of he goes and visits this radio show out in Southern California. And so there's this whole list of songs where he just breaks down songs bit by bit taking down the tracks, telling how they work and everything. And today I listened to Jesse's Girl from Rick Springfield, oh, yeah. which I thought, what what would be interesting about this? What was so amazing about that was the background vocals and the harmonies. It was amazing how well Rick Springfield sang. It was a very poppy song. Everybody knows Jesse's Girl and stuff. In the background, his harmonies and stuff are just absolutely top notch. And so now I've been listening through that show. I listened to like five episodes today and there's like 50 of them. So my playlist for the next week at work is just this radio show. I'm sure you found some other facts from it that you could share with me. Yes. Well, this isn't from that, but here's a fact that I found out. I can't remember how I found out. I was listening to Supertramp and the song Logical Song, which was off of Breakfast in America. Very popular album. It's probably one of my favorite albums of oh, all yeah. time. I've heard that song many, 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 many times. As I was reading on a Wikipedia page about it, they had mentioned that while they're recording this song, they used a Pop-O-Matic. You remember from Trouble? The game's with Trouble with a little dice in there, and you, and you pop it, and it rolls the dice. What was it? Trouble? Sorry? Use that? No, what else? sorry. Only, only, it was, I think it was copyrighted by uh, the Trouble and whoever Hasbro made it. I think it was the only one. There may have been another one, but anything that came on that, you could only have the Pop-O-Matic in that. Trouble was Rebecca's favorite game to play with Daddy. Next to Sorry. Sorry was nothing but drafting cards. It was either Sorry Daddy or... Or, oh, daddy, and send me home. Uh, those were good times. <laughs> good times. So that was used in the logical song. Well, here, just let me play it for you. So this happens right in the course. And it's uh, right in between the lyrics. Uh, there's times when all the world's asleep. There's a gap, and you'll hear a pop, pop. And then it's the questions run too deep, pop, pop. Now, listen to it. I've noticed that before in the song, but never thought a thing about it. I just thought it was a percussion instrument. That is actually the Pop-O-Matic from Trouble. So here's what I don't understand after listening to that. Generally, and having heard the Pop-O-Matic from, Pop- from Trouble so many times, there's also the sound of the dice as it hits. I think they took the dice out. They, they had to because you would hear that. Which is probably what makes it less less noticeable because you're right. You would hear the rattling of the dice inside too. So instead, they probably popped off the, the clear cover took the dice out and then put it back on, then popped it that way. But here's even the more amazing thing. So at the very end of the song where they start doing this little improv thing, there's this little electronic sound that I just thought for sure 
was a keyboard. I just thought that they mentioned the word uh, digital and you hear this like a little computer type sound. And, and here, here it is. I'll play it. know tony you know what it is because we've talked about this before but for anybody that's out there just quick do you have any idea what that is and i'll just give you a hint if you grew up in the 70s and had some a little handheld toy a little electronic device before even game boy came out or or merlin then you might recognize that as the tackle sound from Mattel's electronic football game. And now that they've, I read that and went and heard it, it's like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what it is. I would have never picked up. And what was funny is I got right to that. When you said go listen to it, I, I just somehow clicked on it and I immediately heard it. And I was like, wow. As much as I heard that sound, I was like, holy cow, it's right in there. And, you know, you know, Mattel's football was made in 1977. And Logical Song, which, truth, I never knew it was called the Logical Song for a long time. I had no clue what it was called. <laughs> you know, the Logical Song, you know, the one that Supertramp sings, what's logical about it? I, I was confused. But anyway, that came out in 1979. Those games were so popular back then. So the story was, was there's another studio beside where they were recording, and there was a recording engineer playing the game and they heard it and they thought, well, this will really fit for that part in the song where we mentioned the word digital. And so they grabbed it and uh, recorded it. And now it's it, now every time I hear that, I will always know what that is. And what's the, like I said, what's so funny? I heard it before. It's like, well, that's just an electronic whistle. That's just, you, you know, a keyboard or something making a whistle sound. Nope. It's actually the uh, electronic football game, which I absolutely loved. I, I don't know how many batteries I went through playing that game. Mm. How many did you have? Do you have baseball, basketball, football? Do you have them all? Uh, so, yes, I had the baseball. I had football one and two. I had basketball. I had soccer and hockey. Um, and of all of them, I wore baseball out. I enjoyed baseball one. I mean, football one more than two. I didn't really like the passing in football two. Agree. And then as far as uh, basketball, eh, hockey, I think it was hockey. I know soccer was there. I enjoyed, see, even back then I enjoyed playing the soccer, even though it was all blip, 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 blip. That was fine. <laughs> so well, that means you're probably pretty excited about uh, Ignacy's announcement for Portal Games about him coming out with a soccer game. Yes, I'm always excited excited about anything from Ignacy because it makes my selection to the squirrelies that much easier as I continue the running joke of he doesn't release certain games after so long. But before we get over into what we're here to talk about, board games, you mentioned a podcast you were listening to, and then you went over into Mattel, which takes me to one I've listened to recently called Business Wars from Wondery. Okay. I don't know. Have you listened to any of those? I have not. You have said that I need to listen to some of those. So I need to check that out some time because it sounds interesting. They're very interesting because I enjoy how they breaks it down. Like I've listened to Hershey versus Mars and how that I did not realize it took Milton Hershey four years to come up with milk chocolate. Oh, I know he, he didn't cook the milk right. And then Mattel versus Hasbro and the battle those two toy makers have and how the GI Joe for GI Joe is Hasbro. And how the guy they were they were making the the weapons for GI Joe, 
And it started when they came out because they weren't going to do dolls. They were going to do action figures. It even started back then, Marty, and how the guy had gone and gotten a surplus of weapons from World War II and was driving them back to Hasbro's headquarters and got stopped by the Boston police. And they said, whatever happens, you cannot let them know why you're carrying all these weapons back to our headquarters because they didn't want it to leak out that they were making G.I. Joe to beat Barbie. He had hand grenades, rocket launch, all this kind of stuff bazookas and he's okay well you just go on because he said he was going to do a museum (laughs) there's safety for you in the in the 60s so but the most interesting fact was mattel mattel needed to have barbie a significant other so they came up with ken of course and one of the most interesting thing is ken had three models that were going to be produced the first model he was flat in front flat in front so not ergonomically correct right no, that's not. That is not, not ergonomic. Total wrong. He was not anatomically correct. Yes. Ergonomic. Wow. Uh, ergonomically <laughs> anatomically. That, that would be that. That's a whole nother tangent right there. <laughs> yes. The second one, there was a slight bump, a little bit of a bulge. Oh, yeah. There you go. And the third one was he had the full package. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did not know that. So he was. Fully anatomically correct. Yes. So the executives are looking at it and said, well, the first one, no, that just doesn't look right. The third one, they're like, our daughters cannot be seeing this. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, the second one's the winner, but it still doesn't look right. So they fashioned onto Ken permanent underwear, the plastic underwear. I didn't know that. I didn't know he had permanent underwear on. And the first ones he did. And I was like, get out of town. Some of the things you learn. Um, I know you don't have Netflix, but if you ever get Netflix, make sure to check out uh, The Toys That Made Us. It's a show where they look at old toy manufacturers and, and the lines of toys that came out. And there's a whole one on Barbie, History of Barbie, and they talk about Ken. I don't remember them talking about that specifically. And there was a whole thing on G.I. Joe, too. And it's really interesting how from the G.I. Joe and the Barbie, they went to the Star Wars figures and how they went to the smaller scale figures. And people are like, there's no way that's going to work because people are used to these eight inch dolls. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, the little, what are they, four or five inch figures just totally took off. Well, they, they passed on the fact that this Star Wars thing's not going to be a hit. Yeah. Uh, they who Which one passed on it? One of the big companies passed on I, it. I think it was maybe Mattel. I can't remember. I, go listen to Business Wars. They talk about it. Yeah, well, or go check out the episode on the toys that made us because that's how Kenner came in to be. This little, small, tiny toy company said, we'll take a chance on it. And then they just blew up. And, and then Mars, uh, Frank Mars' company, um, passed on Paramount or whoever made E.T. came to them said, we'd like M&M's. We want a million dollars to put M&M's in E.T. And they were like, we don't want any part of that. That's nonsense. That's not going on. That thing looks ugly. And yep. they went to Hershey. And for Reese's Pieces and Hershey was like, we don't really want to do this, but they were like, you need to do this. And they did it. Bam. Reese's Pieces uh, outpaced M&M's. I get into the history of stuff like that. That's why I enjoy that. The toys that made us and and things. And and like this, this show I'm listening to with all that, the history of the music and how the stuff was made. And Masters of the Universe was something that they developed the cartoon for the doll. The doll was ready. But the cartoon was not. So they came up with Masters of the Universe cartoon. Yes. And again, that's also in Toys That Made Us, too. There's a whole episode on uh, Masters of the Universe. In fact, did you know that it was just announced that Kevin Smith is going to make a Masters of the Universe show for Netflix? So he's bringing it back. 
Is it going to be live action or? No, it's going to be animated. But here's my worry. I thought this was going to be like the hand-drawn animation. I was talking to Jamie from The Secret Cabal, and he thinks it's going to be more of the 3D type thing, like Clone Wars, which I am not a fan of at all. I really have enjoyed hand-drawn animation. It's funny, when Pixar came out, I thought, this is the wave of animation. This is amazing, but I'm kind of tired of it. To the point where I really appreciate the hand-drawn stuff. So I hope it's that. But they got some big names coming. Mark Hamill is going to be um, Skeletor. Uh, the guy who played Batman, Kevin Conroy, is also going to be one of the, the, the parts in it. Sarah Michelle Geller, who played Buffy, is going to be in there. It's just a whole list of people that's going to be voice casting that show. I can't wait for it. And I think there was a hand-drawn, and I can't remember, in the Oscars this year that actually won. Man, I tell you, there's some good good animated stuff out there. I've talked before about the uh, the DC animated universe, which has some amazing stuff. But just this past week, I had finally called up on Castlevania Season 2 from Netflix. What an amazing show. If any, I was going to say, if you like Castlevania, it doesn't matter. If you like a good story, this is so well done. Season 1's kind of slow because it introduces the characters. Have you ever played Castlevania, Tony? I'm not a side-scroller fan. You know that. It's basically based on the Belmont family who hunt monsters and mainly Dracula. So kind of every game is centered around one of the Belmont characters. And, and Dracula is the uh, antagonist. But what I love sometimes about villains is when you have sympathy for a villain and and they have set up Dracula be like, how could you ever feel sympathy for this character? And I won't spoil anything, but within the first one or two episodes, you like, I totally get why this guy is a bad guy. And it carries over into season two. And the penultimate episode of season two, I sat down and watched it with Adam. He had already watched it before. He said, I want to watch this next to last episode with you. And I watched it and my jaw was just on the floor the entire time. The action was amazing. It was heartwarming. And at the end, he said, was that not one of the best episodes of TV you've ever seen? I went, dude, it was. It was absolutely amazing. It all culminated in this one episode. So if you can get through season one, which it is kind of slow, get through season two. It's eight episodes. The penultimate's amazing. And season three is getting ready to launch. Like, there's some good stuff out there right now, man. Well, if you just give me your password, this wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess I could do that, couldn't I? Oh, before we wrap up from that, we mentioned Toys or uh, Toys That Made Us. They've also just announced that they're going to do a whole episode or series on Magic the Gathering, which I think would be very interesting to look at the history of the Magic the Gathering through now, how it was made, competition, all this stuff. So I, it's really exciting to see uh, moving from toys to a card game like Magic the Gar Gathering, getting that kind of notoriety on something like Netflix, which who knows, may bring even more people into the hobby. All right. Now, before I know this is so every board game podcast, but so I went to my mom's. I did not play Phase 10. You did not. What did you play instead? Hand and foot, the card game. Wait a minute. <laughs> that one, No, that one sounds familiar. Have I played that? I don't know. Do you have you ever played a game like um, Michigan Rummy or anything like that, where you're playing partners and you're trying to collect sets of cards, and it's you've got your hand, which is in your hand, the cards in your hand, thirteen, and a foot, which is sitting there, and you have to get rid of your hand to go into your foot, and whoever team goes out gets points, and you add all up these points. Is this a hobby game? No. It's a card it game. It sounds awfully familiar. Was it, So a version of this was not made into the hob, uh, hobby type game? Because it sounds awfully familiar. It could be something like Tripoli. Maybe, no, not really. No, Tripoli has nothing. I don't know. I mean, there's... Hand, I don't know. 
I just know I play hand and foot, Catawba County, North Carolina rules. Is this played on a regular deck of 52 cards? Actually, you play with decks plus one players. So if you're playing with four players, you have to have five decks. So I'm looking at it right now on uh, BGG. There is a game that came out called Hand and Foot from 1982. It's a set collection team-based game. It's got to be it. That's got to be it. So, but I mean, it's, it was, I think it was in Hoyles a long time ago, man. Gotcha. Okay. It's no phase 10 in length, but it can go up to two hours, man. <laughs> you know what you need to try is a couple of games I got to play with Vanessa that are super short. Uh, one is called uh, Stampede from WizKids Games. They're basically kind of stamp collecting. You're trying to collect stamps or pictures of animals, and you're trying to either get a set of five animals or one of every type of animal. And it's one of those really simple things where, you uh, draw a card and you play a card from your hand and the hard card has some sort of action on it. Maybe it's to replace that card with the card that's in the market, which is in the middle of the table that people can interact with. Maybe it is trade a card with somebody else or steal a card from somebody else. It's one of those really sick, quick, simple games. It's easy to pick up and play, play a card, resolve the action to kind of move on. But it takes like 15 to 20 minutes. Just now came out from WizKids. I think it's one of those things that uh, if you got kids and wanted to teach them some simple gameplay mechanics, because every animal has a different action on it that can do different things. It's a really good way to teach multiple action type mechanics uh, based on whichever card you play. Okay. And Vanessa thought it was super easy? Barely an inconvenience. Well, that's yeah, good. She, okay. she enjoyed it. But the one she enjoyed even more was from a company called Cosmos called Brainwaves. Uh, they reached out to us and said, hey, would you be interested in checking this out? There's a set of games I hear that's supposed to help you improve your memory. And it's like, well, yes, I would mm-hmm. because I need that. Mm-hmm. There's several brainwave games and we got the one that's called The Wise Well. And in this game, you have a lot of different types of, of sea creatures, starfish and porpoises and whales and stuff. You have all those different animals and different colors for each animal. So you may have five different colors of whales, five different colors of starfishes, etc. Here's the kicker. When I first read the rules, I thought, oh, okay, we're going to take down nine cards, put them on the table in a three by three grid. And I thought, okay, this is simple, just a matching game. I'm going to draw a card and try to match it with one from on the table. And I thought, I don't, I don't get it. What's the big deal? about that well there's a little bit of twist to this so let's say i draw a blue starfish my goal is to either find another card that's blue or find another starfish you lay out the nine cards and you sit there and stare at them for about two minutes they say about take about two minutes try to memorize the the layout put them face down then a person draws a card so let's say that starfish so i'm going to pick one of the cards i think is either blue or starfish and flip it over if it is i take that card that i just flipped over and take it over to my side of the table and put it down in front of me, take the card that I drew and put it face down in its place. And then I get to go again. If I was correct, I get to go up to two more times. You can go to three times and try to collect three cards. If I'm wrong, the card that I flipped up is discarded and the card that I drew goes down in its place. So do you see what's happening? The nine cards are constantly changing. So you can't just memorize the pattern once when they first went down. The pattern of the cards is constantly changing and that's the memorization part of the game. You have a variable field of stuff that you gotta keep up with. And actually in the back of the rule book, there was a scientific study showing how this game makes your mind work and how it actually does increase memory if you play it with frequency. So we've been playing it a lot. And how's the memory going? The more I've played it, the better I've got at the game. I was going to say, I'd hate to play you in silver now. 
because you only had five cards and it was like a challenge. Yes. And now there's nine and they're constantly changing. Now, Adam kicked our butt. Well, he's young. He would remember like three or four turns in. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, there was a red orca over here. Yep. There it is. I'm like, oh my gosh, there, there was an orca there. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> But anyway, it's one of those things that um, if it's really good for kids, obviously, it's really it's really good for anybody that just wants to kind of work on their memory, which I need to do a lot. And it plays in like 15 minutes. There have been several times after supper where Vanessa said, go get that memory game. Let's just play it real quick. Because just laying out nine cards, looking at them for a minute or so, flicking them, flicking them down, playing it, and you're done. Once you get through the deck, then, then the game's over. You count up whoever has collected the most cards or the course of the game and whoever has the most wins. What's the player count on this? Because you, you got me. I, I mean, I need to get this, and I'll tell you why in a minute. One to four players, because you can just practice solo if you want. Okay, because when we moved back into the house and we um, began to unpack everything, which is another story, and I won't go into that. I mean, everything is inventory. Everything is good. And we're unpacking, and we got down, and we were done with all the boxes. And there are three things missing. Uh-oh. We didn't pack, all right? Someone else yes. packed for us. And, Don- right. and Donna's like, where are these three things? And I, I got no idea. Did they lose them? Did they break them and not tell us? You know, so the conspiracy theories are rolling. Things are coming fast and furious. I'm like, I don't know. She doesn't know. Fast and Furious 9 coming out this summer. I could care less. I'm just like, hey, sweetie, I know these things were important. One thing was brought back to us from uh, China by Rebecca prior to COVID-19. And then there was a um, gnome that was given to my mom when Rebecca was born. And gnomes, go look it up, Tom Clark and his gnomes. But anyway, they're treasures, right? Sure. Couldn't find it. Well, we looked at the pictures that were taken before we left the house. And those things were not on the bookshelf. Donna packed them and now she can't remember where she placed them. So, So we need the memory. We need it. You need to play this game. I need to play this game. I think I know. We think we know where they are. We think we took them to mom with a whole bunch of other stuff. Everything else is perfect. Uh, They damaged some furniture, but that's okay. We'll figure that out later. And there's actually three versions of this game from Cosmos. There's the brilliant boar, the one we had, the wise well, and the astute goose. If it was the astute Canadian goose, I know that breaks the the alliteration. I know where that one should go. The astute goose sounds cute. Players need to identify a burglar hiding in the crowd. It's like, what did the culprit look like? What color were the clothes? And what animal accomplices did they have? It's not the exact same game as the well. It plays a little bit differently. And there's a little bit of a dice mechanic in in this one too. So each one is different. And each one I think supposedly helps on different types of memory because you know there's short-term memory long-term memory the, the one that we play where the memory is constantly having to ch- adjust and a change which is the one i need i think because mm-hmm. as soon as i see something i was like now what was that over there see and i can tell because i think we talked about stan you talked about stampede earlier mm-hmm. so and now we've revisited stampede no this isn't stampede no i'm not saying it is i'm saying on a, few, a previous episode i think we talked about stampede and you talked about it again. So I can understand where brainwaves is going to be very helpful for you. Wait a minute. Hold on. I talked about Stampede before. If memory serves, I think you did. If you didn't, then I stand corrected. It's not going to be in the show notes because it was when you were rattling off a whole bunch of stuff. Because I thought you played it up at, uh, at BGG Con. Oh, guaranteed I didn't play it at BGG Con because I just now got it from WizKids. Uh, my memory serves me bad, so get me the game. Oh, no, I know what you're talking about. There was something that had this uh, kind of a familiar name, but it was from somebody else. Oh, okay. So there we go. That does sound familiar. Yes. And for me to <laughs> remember what that was, I just need to play more Brainwaves if that's going to happen. 
Just announced on the day of this recording, Miniature Market is now carrying off-world design t-shirts. Now, if you've ever been to any of the major cons like Gen Con, there's always an off-world designs booth selling tons of geeky and nerdy t-shirts that contain pop culture and games, etc. Well, now these shirts are available on Miniature Market. There's 99 different designs, different sizes, you can go out there right now and check it out. It's right on their front page or just search for off-world designs. Tony Miniature Market starting to carry a bunch of non-gaming stuff, which I think is cool. You know, they had the, the gear, the, the bags and everything they introduced. They have their own t-shirts they have, and now they're carrying these off-world design t-shirts. So not only can you go buy a game, you can get some attire to wear while you're playing those games. To find out more, head over to miniaturemarket.com. Five minute initiative begins in three, two, one. The designer Prospero Hall has been releasing a lot of board games recently based on movies. One of the most popular ones that came out last year was Jaws, and we had a chance to play that. It was a fun game. A lot of people really liked that. Well, now they've got a game coming out from the famous Stephen King movie from the 70s called the Shining. Now, I was excited to play this game because this game is based in the Overlook Hotel, which is where the movie takes place. And you play as characters walking around different rooms in the hotel in order to try to avoid The Shining. You want to have enough willpower in order to avoid being overtaken by The Shining. Now, Tony, I put this down on the table in front of you. I was going to say, hey, man, how does this theme work out and everything? And lo and behold, you tell me. I've never seen The Shining. So a lot of this was totally lost on him as all these Shining cards have art on them from different scenes from the movie and everything like that. So, uh, Tony, a lot of this was just lost. So to you, this ended up being basically a social deduction game because in the four-player game that we played, there is one person that is corrupted and three that are caretakers. And the caretakers are trying to survive for either four or five months. And the corrupted is trying to kill off one of them. That's right. And so for me, you know... the. Did it matter that it was The Shining? No. I mean, I had enough cultural references to understand what was going on. But as far as the mechanics are going, I mean, this game is easy to learn. Because, I mean, basically what's happening is at the start of a month, everybody gets two Shining cards. And to avoid the corruption, you have to build up enough. I'm going to call it defense, Marty, but you're going to use the correct term, aren't you? Like called willpower? Willpower, right. And so you're collecting tokens on the board that allow you to build up that willpower. And then at the end of the month, which is done by effect cards, that if two effect cards come up in the same color, it ends. Now, they're either going to be purple or green. It's not like there's going to be a lot. So the most you can go is three. So when that happens, the month ends, everybody flips over their shining cards. And if you have enough willpower, then you have beat the corruption. If you didn't, you start killing people. That's where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. See, these shining cards that come out are face down in front of you. And you see on the back of the cards what their values are. It has a range from like maybe two to five, one to four, et cetera. So you kind of know what you're shooting for. So if I have two one to four cards down in front of me, I know the max is going to be as eight. And on your turn, you're going to take your pawn and you're going to move from one room to another room. And then when you get into that room, if there's a willpower token there, you can pick it up. Now you have a limited pool of willpower that's set up at the beginning of the game. There's 13 willpower per player. At the end of each month, any 
willpower that was taken off the board is then replaced from that pool. But as you play the game, if you move into a room that somebody else has picked up all the willpower tokens, then you can spend willpower from the pool in order to move to additional rooms in order to try to get more willpower. But now you're depleting the willpower pool, which makes it harder to survive at the end of the month. And each of the rooms you go into have some sort of special ability. It may be peek at the next event card. It may be take the highest willpower token, take the lowest willpower token, pick up a token, move somebody else. Or, Tony, you can move into the hedge maze which is a very important part of the movie where if you go in there, you can't be intact from somebody that's in the Overlook Hotel. Likewise, if you're the person who's attacking somebody, you can't attack somebody from there into the Overlook Hotel. Because like you said, if the willpower is not exceeded, then you are overtaken by the Shining. You're going to move to the closest person to you. You're going to roll a couple dice that could deal with potential damage. Each person has three health. As soon as all the health is gone by one of the caretakers, the game immediately ends. But Tony, the thing is though, this is a social deduction game and there's somebody out there trying to screw you up. Now, from my standpoint, it's all it became. It, it was interesting to try to play and manipulate it from that standpoint. But, you know, all in all, what got long for me was everybody saying, well, we got to pick someone that's corrupted. It's going to be him. It's going to be him. No, let's do this. Do that. So Fred suddenly flips over his card and accuses you. And it was I was the corrupted one. And so I now need to figure out how to kill y'all. I think it's a different type of social deduction game. You liked it better this way than playing it without the, the um, corrupted person. But for me, it was fast. It was quick. I'd play it again. It plays three to five players, about 45 to 60 minutes. I did play a three-player game with Vanessa. She does not like hidden trader games. So we just played it normally. At that point, it becomes a puzzle game. You're trying to puzzle out how many willpower tokens do we have left? Do we do we have to want to make sure that we're not close enough to each other to, to kill somebody? Hey, you're not going to have enough willpower going to the hedge, so you won't be able to attack anybody. And even, Tony, with, with playing with the corrupted person, you end up kind of puzzling it out towards the end. Once you were revealed as the uh, corrupted person, basically, we kind of mathed out the puzzle to make sure that you couldn't kill any of us. So there is a puzzle element to it. Kind of removes you from the theme. The theme is there, but once you get into it, it really is trying to make sure you maximize the willpower tokens that are available to you, try to determine who the corrupted person is, and basically try to avoid them. So once you get into the game, the theme is really cool, but once the game has started, the theme kind of faded away for me. But if this sounds interesting to you, then you want to check out The Shining from designer Prospero Hall from publisher Mixlore. If you like The Shining, then you'll for sure want to check this out. Five minute initiative is complete. The whole reason why this episode is called what it is called is because we got to put on the table Atlantis Rising 2nd Edition from Elf Creek Games. Now, this originally came out from Z-Man Games, and I have an original copy, so I was very excited to hear that this was coming out again, but it devalued my original copy which kind of pissed me off. You should have sold it before now. I should have sold it. I mean, I picked it up for $20. I didn't know they were going to come. And I was like, I should have turned it around. I could but anyway, this was designed by Galen Sissel and Brent Dickman. It's a co-op game. So I was a little concerned because the group, Marty, have we ever done a co-op game in that group? Yes. What? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. We played uh, Lord of the Rings, Journeys in Middle Earth. We played. Oh, that, that doesn't so. count. That doesn't count. If I start listing co-op games that we played, they don't count all of a sudden? That's right. They don't because I'm not making my point. <laughs> 
So I, I don't know. But anyway, Atlantis Rising. Oh, oh, before we get to Atlantis Rising, let me tell you something. Oh, my gosh. So I'm glad this isn't a five minute one. Well, it's not going to be a five minute because there's just too much in it. And you'll go on, on and on and on about the rules. OK, because the rules. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, because the rules are straightforward. I place a worker and do something and move on to somebody else's turn. That's exactly it. There's only, what, four phases to this thing? And what's that first phase? Well, I don't know. You said you you said before Atlantis Rising and you're going to talk about something else. What were you going to talk about? I forgot. Let's move on. So, so you need to play Brainwave I know in Cosmos. Oh my gosh, I do. This is so sad. I better go put it in the podcast notes. So, <laughs> so yeah. So what, what is phase number one? Well, well, let's get to the end of the game. We need to get... <laughs> Oh Lord! No, we need to get oh. off. Uh, we need to get out of Atlantis because it's sinking. It's flooding. The floods are coming. The gods are upset with us, and they are going to wash our beautiful city away. Michael J. Fox cannot even save us. Michael J. Fox. Did you know that one? Um, there was a uh, Atlantis movie. No, I have no clue what you're talking about. Well, why don't you tell everybody how we get off the island? <laughs> oh my gosh. Just go with it. Work with me. Maybe we should limit this to five minutes. We are all over the place. At the beginning of the game, there are 10 components that are placed out on the board. In order to escape the island, to teleport off the island, you must build each of these 10 components. The first nine must be built before the final 10th one is made, and it actually costs the most resources. Each component requires a certain number of resources. On the table, you have the island with these really cool peninsulas that are around the board. And these peninsulas are set up that each peninsula is made up of a piece of uh, the board, so it can be flipped over to the sinking side, which is eventually what's going to happen over the course of the game. You can't stop the sinking. The only thing you can hope to do is just is just get off the board, Tony. That's right. So the goal is, is make those 10 components and get off the board before the entire island sinks. Yep. Get off the island. That's what you need to do. And by the way, that was Atlantis, the Lost Empire, where Michael J. Fox was voiced Milo Thatch. Well, there you go. It actually sank, but they built a force field around it and kept it up. Oh so so you're trying to place these workers out there that will give you the ability to collect resources mm -hmm. or gain knowledge. Which are cards. Which are cards that give you special abilities and you're limited on how many you can have. And then over there, we can do some stuff with the ore. We can make it into some Atlantean. Over, over there. Wow. There are three resources, ore, gold, and what? Or gold or crystal. You did remember that. And with the ore, there's a whole peninsula dedicated for converting ore into Atlantean metal. I thought you called it Atlanteanium. Because the components will require some sort of number of crystal, gold, and the Atlantean steel. Atlanteanium steel. So you collect the ore, mm -hmm. you go convert that, and then you can go build these different components. So it's a resource gathering game. Where on your turn, you're going to place your pool of workers. And since it's co-op, it's not like one person places their worker and the next person goes. Everybody works together to place their workers all around this island. And once that's done, then you have to move to the phase where well, something bad is going to happen, Tony. You know, like in Pandemic, you got that deck you got to draw where you, stupid diseases come out. Well, in this game, you got a deck where you draw where a piece of a peninsula is probably going to flood. So if it's like the hill section, you take the piece of the peninsula that's furthest away from the center and flip it over. Mm -hmm. And guess what, Tony? If you're one of your workers are there, they just go back to your board. So you just wasted a worker, basically, in that case. They were able to swim to safety. They were able to swim to safety, but you lost the ability... 
in order to take that action because that piece of the peninsula has sunk. In a four-player game, each of you are going to resolve one of those cards. Now, there are calm seas, Tony, and that's one way you can change the difficulty of the game is by increasing or decreasing the number of calm seas. It's like a sunny day at the beach at Robinson mm-hmm. Crusoe. Exact same thing. Nothing happens. But then after that, then you resolve the workers that are on the board. And I thought that was interesting, Tony. So you place the workers, then bad stuff happens. Then if your workers survive, you actually get to take the actions that you place the workers for. You, you've got to ma- manipulate the dice, which you can use with mystic coins. You can spend mm-hmm. those to manipulate the dice. So if you don't like dice games and you're like, oh, this has got dice in it. Well, there's ways to do it and there's ways to collect these as you play. And then there's also the ability to gather more workers if you need to. That's part of the peninsula. Did you say that already? No, I did not. One of the peninsulas about getting more of your workers unlocked. You only start with a few number and one of them is your leader. And one of the cool things is is that every beginning of the game everybody picks a special role that uh, your leader will be able when it's placed it will give you some sort of benefit like maybe keep a piece of an island from sinking or guarantee a success when somebody rolls and we didn't mention how the dice rolling works for there's three places that you collect resources the ore the crystal and the gold the further out on the peninsula you are the easier it is to get those commodities or resources by rolling dice. You're going to roll a die for each worker that you have placed there. And if your die roll meets or exceeds the number of that particular piece, you get that resource. But as the island sinks and you have to move closer to the center of the board, the die values increase of what you need to roll. And that's what you mentioned, Tony. You need to have some sort of engine for getting those mystic coins because for every coin that you spend, you can increase a die roll by one. And those coins also are very helpful because they can put up gates that can prevent the island from flooding. That's an important part of it too. For me, I enjoyed the dice rolling of this game, of collecting the resources, of taking the risk. When I need, Knowing that if I get flooded, I'm going to have a bad day at the beach. I like that mechanic of the game. To me, without that, it was just kind of... Um, a resource gathering, worker placement, you know? It was, but the thing is, though, can you think of any other co-op worker placement games that we've played? I mean, this is hardcore worker placement. You're putting out multiple workers. Some of the workers have special abilities. You can work together. Actually, some of the uh, locations require multiple workers on a piece to, in order to activate it. Or the one peninsula where you can get extra workers takes more than one worker place there to even have a chance mm-hmm to get uh, the extra worker. Uh, The components that are out on the board, the order that you build those components are important because some of those components actually have worker slots on them. Like the one we had the other night was, uh, once you build this, you can place a worker here and get two mystic coins. Typically, the only way to get any more additional coins is to go to the center of the island where you only get one. So by building that piece early, we were able to generate Mystic Coins, which, like you said, were valuable for putting up the gates that blocks flooding or manipulating dice rolls. You can also spend coins to keep additional cards when you go to the library and get those artifacts and other event cards, which can be used during the course of the game. And all that's important. Pandemic's not a worker placement game, right? It's just no, a, it's, a move. It's just a it's move. Just a, it's just a pick up and move. And, and I like my worker placement game. So this, this one kind of excelled for me, man. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not saying by any means that I didn't enjoy this because I really did enjoy it. Like I said, the dice really added a lot for me. I could see the elements of pandemic in it, especially on the knowledge cards. They, they were like the special event cards from pandemic. And I like the fact that instead of having to hopefully draw one from the deck as you do in pandemic here, I can 
Spend a worker to go over there and do that. Take the risk to try to get those cards. And if I research the knowledge, and this is one, as you moved up on that peninsula, as you came up, you were get to draw two cards, but you had to pick one and discard it. So someone else did not have the ability early in the game, you'd put it on the bottom of the deck and you don't get to reshuffle. Yeah, so those cards are limited resources. Right. So you've got to you've got to balance that. You've got to say, well, how can we work together to using our special powers to like re-roll die or avert the floods or give us a choice on how things get flooded? And and the game comes with tons of roles that you can play. So I think it will add a lot. And I think some will work better, kind of like in pandemic, you always had to have the the medic. All right. It's, right. It seemed like everybody mm-hmm. needed the medic. For me, I, I really enjoyed this game. The components we've got, we got the deluxified mega industrial strength version, top notch production, top notch from yeah. Elf, Creek, Elf Creek as always. There is a lot of variability in the game, like you mentioned. So there's different roles you can play. Uh, the components that you put out are randomized. So you may have different components that are being built each game. Of course, the cards that are coming out are randomized. You can change the difficulty. Uh, You can make it a little bit harder. We started out more on the easy level, and we did end up winning. And it wasn't too much pressure. It wasn't like we won by the skin of our teeth. I think if we played again, we make it a little more more difficult. We played with four players. It could play up to seven. But I've also played with Vanessa. I played with two players. Two players works fine, except you have an extra uh, mechanic uh, where there's a hologram that whoever is the first player controls that, and they get to pick one of the other roles that were not chosen at the beginning of the game. And the hologram can be used for that turn for that particular role. So it adds this little extra thing that you have to deal with. I think I'd rather play three or four players just so I could play a standard game. And I think four uh, just worked really well. So for me, uh, this is a game that I will always enjoy taking an opportunity to play. I will say that when we played and we won, we also cheated, but that's okay. We're entitled to a cheat every once in a while. What was our cheat? What was the asterisk? The asterisk was the fact that we were placing workers where it should if you had five or more players. And we didn't. Yes. Yeah. We didn't catch that. We did not catch that because the print was kind of small. They needed to increase (laughs) the font, but that's okay. But so for me, Elf Creek, thank you for bringing Atlantis Rising back. Love the game. Can't wait to play it again. One thing I do like this over uh, pandemic was lots of times you have to get in sort of certain places in order to trade resources and everything. What I liked about this, Tony, if you had gold and I had crystal and there's a component that needed both of those, there's a special spot on the board uh, where you can place your workers in order to build one of the components. If we both went there together, we could spend each of our resources in order to build that component. It didn't suffer from an alpha player thing. We all kind of decided what needed to be done and we all had a good plan. It's like, all right, so we need to get, we counted up how many resources do we need to win this game? And we tried to collect all the crystal, then we collect all the metal. And then what happened at the end of every round after you've activated all your workers, you have to choose to flip a piece of the board over based on where a tracker is in the game. And it increases starting at zero, it moves up to three. So at the end of the round, whatever that marker is, you have to pick the group picks what tiles to flip over. So what we did is we got to the point to where, okay, uh, we don't need that peninsula anymore. So let's go ahead and we can start letting it flood. But you had to be careful because if a card was flipped over that said, we flood this particular peninsula and all the tiles were already flooded, then you had to flood two other tiles and two other peninsulas. And if the middle of the board ever flooded, the game was over. To win, you basically build everything, get off the island. Otherwise, if the island sinks before that happens, then you lose. I like my co-op games. 
I like my worker placement games and these work really well together. I think the theme works really well. Fantastic production. Thank you, Elf Creek, for coming out with this new version. They've also got Honey Buzz coming soon, Tony, which I'm excited about. Elf Creek is one of those publishers I think is going to have some really cool games on the horizon. The Broken Token has brought you many organizers, especially for those living card games, collectible card games, trading card games, all types of card games. Well, they've done it again. They've got the Champions Organizer. You know, the Marvel Champions. You've heard Marty talk about it. He tried to convince me that I need to go buy this pack. Okay, he didn't convince me to go buy any pack. He simply just stated that if I wanted to do this or that. But either way, if I were to go get those expansion packs, the Champions Organizer over at the Broken Token Works. What do you think about that, Marty? Oh, that's right. You stepped out to go pee. So anyway, go check out thebrokentoken.com for information about this organizer as well as all their other organizers that you can find over at thebrokentoken.com. Five-minute initiative begins in three, two, one. Renegade Games has just released a game called Stellar from designer Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. The famous designer duos come out with a lot of games in the past. And Tony, no matter how well we try to explain this, I don't think we're going to do a good enough job of explaining just how good this two-player card game is. This freaking game is stellar! <laughs> I've been waiting. I've been waiting so long. You've been to get waiting on that one? That, that, that was good. So this is a two-player game where you're trying to collect the most victory points. Each of you have basically a skeleton or a map of a telescope that's put down on the board at the beginning of the game. You have a card on top, two beneath it, another two beneath it, then three and then four. Makes a nice little picture of a telescope there, Tony. And you have a deck of cards that have five different suits of different space things like planets, moons, asteroids, clouds, and black holes ranging from values one to five. Some of those have a, a value of either zero or a six. Then you have a set of cards numbered one through five. You put your deck down. You put down your market of cards under those one through five. Each of you draw two cards and you play. And Tony, this game is so simple because... You're going to draw a card from one of those five cards in the market. You're going to put that card in your hand. Then you're going to take one of the cards from your hand and either put it into your telescope area or into your notebook. Whatever value card that you played, one through five, you're going to pick up the corresponding card back from the market and put it in play in the other place. So, for example, if I played a three on the telescope, I'll pick up the card in the third slot from the market and play it in my notebook, and then it's your turn. That goes back and forth for 12 rounds, and then there's this crazy way of scoring victory points. And as simple as that is, it is an amazing game. Yeah. And actually, it's 11 rounds, but that's okay. It felt like 12 rounds. You're right. The hard part is how to calculate at the end because you're trying to get so many points and majority. And if you have runs in your notebook, you get to multiply the number of cards in a run times the number of stars you have for that match. So if you have a run of moons, three cards that are three, four, five, that's three in the run. And you have look at your... Um, what you saw in the night sky, you can say, oh, I saw five stars on my moon car. So five times three is 15. And you can generate a lot of points like that, which brings me to the strategy of this game. You've got to see what the other astronomer is looking at. How is he building out his cards? Because if you're not careful, he can quickly, like Marty did, ramp up to like 42 points. 
And that yep. gets ugly fast and there's no way to overcome. So sometimes you may have to, I don't want to say hate draft, but you have to strategically think which cards you're going to take from the market, hoping to mess up the plans of the other astronomer. This game, when you first put it in front of me, I was like, oh my heavens, this I'm really not grasping how this game is going to be hard, challenging. Where's the strategy? I'm like, eh, how's this going to play? But the minute we started getting into it, I was in love with this game. Yeah, and it, it's so crazy. That simple thing of drawing one of the five cards, picking where you want to place it. But the value of that card dictates the next card that you take, and it must be played in the other location. So you're trying to work out these combos, right? Sometimes it's like, man, I really want that card right there. But in order for me to get that card under in the two slot, I need to play a card with a value of two and I don't have one. So what's my other plans? That mechanic right there, I think was one of the best things of all. I just absolutely loved it. When you play the card and let's say you took the market card and you ended up playing that card that had the same number, you then draw blindly from the deck. So you don't know what you're going to get and how it's going to come into your hand. Now there are, there's a way to mitigate some of that. And that is with a wild card. It's the mm -hmm. satellite going by. It lets you place it wherever you want and you can move it in your notebook. So that helps. However, it does not count towards the stars you've seen because well, a satellite's not a, a celestial body. It's not a celestial body. Thank you. I appreciate that. So for me, um, pinchback riddle thumbs up guys, this, this is a good game. Great two-player game. I'm going to get my own copy because I think Donna is going to love this because of the thinkingness of it. Uh, we didn't even mention, when you place a card in the telescope, it must be adjacent to an existing suit of that card that's already been played. So there's even rules of where you can place cards in that telescope. And like you said, there's multiple ways of scoring. There's an upper, middle, and bottom part of the telescope. Whoever has the most highest value cards in each of those sections could get 10 points. If you get each of the five suits in your telescope, that could give you 10 points. So there's a lot of ways to score. Again, the whole mechanic of drawing a card, playing a card in one of the two spots, picking up the corresponding value card and playing that in the other position just makes this game so thinky. This two-player 30-minute game from Renegade Games, Stellar, Oh, it is already one of my favorite two-player games of 2020. I know it's early, Tony, mm -hmm. but we got to remember this next year when the Squirrelies come around. That's right. So I'm, I'm digging it. Got to go find my own copy. Five-minute initiative is complete. For some odd reason, Marty has decided that we need to have intelligent discussions near the end of the <laughs> podcast. I have no idea why he would want to do that. So let me just first start off by saying that there is oh. a conspiracy at Bojangles. Yes, I know this anecdote. Please share it with everyone, Tony. And you might need to give a little bit of a backstory to explain why this is so important. So last summer, my wife and I were heading towards the beach, and we decided that we needed some Bowberry biscuits. And now these Bowberry biscuits come in icing, and they were special. They were shaped in footballs, and we decided we really needed that sweet, tasty treat from Bojangles and we stopped along the way and one store didn't have any in. They had sold out another store, had them baking and it was going to be another five to 10 minutes before they could get there, come out of the oven. And I just, Oh, they were, they were out to get me. So Marty and I had a, a rolling dice and taking name strategy meeting. Okay. Stop laughing. Well, we also played stellar. Yeah. We got to play stellar, but people are laughing strategy meeting you too. Yeah. Right. So anyway, we stopped and I was going to treat my buddy there to a Bojangles 
Raspberry Biscuit, which, by the way, are the shape of hearts now for Celebrate Valentine's Day. And I went up there and I said, oh, by the way, to go with my Bojangles salad, I would like two Bowberry Biscuits, please. And she goes, well, sir, that's fine, but we don't have any icing. <laughs> that's the whole thing. You got to have icing on Bowberry Biscuits. It's a conspiracy against you, man. You just do not have luck with these specially shaped Bowberry biscuits from Bojangles. No, I don't. Uh, I mean, Kent Parker brought us some when we went to Mega Moose Con, and there were plenty, and they were so good. So I was. Oh, they were good. So I, I was like, man, I just. It was. It was cold, wet, rainy. I was like, man, I just. I need me a sweet treat. But no, it's out to get me. Maybe, maybe Kent will bring us some heart shape. They'll be old and stale by that time. No, that's true. Yeah, but, but so that was an intelligent conversation, but I'm going to get another one for you. Okay. Is there a need for an expansion for a board game in today's environment? So let, let me just pontificate a little bit on this. Please do. With the mass of board games coming out, and we talked about this previously, why would someone invest in an expansion? If a game is already hit the shelves, three weeks later, it's gone, it's dust, no one remembers it, why would you try to revive it? Is there a need in today's board gaming industry, an expansion? I kid Nate about Sunday Split that he said, I want my expansion the, for, for Sunday Split, the, the nutty toppings or whatever he wants to call it. He says, there's not going to be an expansion for this. So, Marty, I ask you, is there a need? I think from a publisher's point of view, the whole value of an expansion is to try to get it back into the spotlight. If you have a hot game that comes out, and you're right, three weeks later down the road, more than likely it's going to disappear. And maybe as a, a publisher's point of view, it's like, well, if we could release this expansion, then, okay, all of a sudden this base game will get some little more love and maybe it'll show up in the BGG hot list again because the expansion's out there for it. I think it's smart from the publisher's point of view to go ahead and release expansion just to hopefully see if you can get some more base game sold and just kind of keep it in the limelight for a little bit longer. I totally understand the publisher's reason for doing it. As a consumer, I mean, it doesn't hurt us at all, right? It, there's really no loss from a consumer standpoint for there to be an expansion. No, but it's time spent on another brilliant idea someone could be having other than bringing out an expansion for a game that is dead. Because most expansions now that come out are for the, what's the term about a long-running game like Ticket to Ride? Um, Evergreen. Evergreen. I was thinking Silver or something. I don't know. So, yes, an Evergreen title, they will do that because we just got the expansion for Ticket to Ride, the um, Japan-Italy maps, or better yet, uh, think of Terraforming Mars. You know, Stephen Bonacore over at Stronghold should be constantly pumping out Terraforming Mars expansions to keep that game alive. Ticket to Ride is not going to go anywhere. The expansions to Pandemic have stopped. They did the Legacy series, and so mm. no more of those have come out. And we look at games that have come out that were hot, Wingspan quickly followed up with this expansion because it was hot. So it makes me wonder, was that expansion already there? And they were just holding on to it to see if they could, you know, keep pumping that, that, that engine going. So let me ask you this. Do you fault publishers for having an expansion in their back pocket when they just could have included it with the base game? No, I don't. I, I have never had an, a problem with that. Their, their job is to make money. So why would you not? My first job is, is does the base game sell? Does it make me money? Yes. It's a flow chart, Marty. It's real simple. Yes. Decision. Then it sold. I got money. Do I have an expansion ready? Yes. Will it make me money? Bingo. Make that decision and go. 
Did the base game sell? No. Do I have an expansion? Yes. Will it make me money? No. In production. Boom. Done. Let me ask you this. Do you think Terraforming Mars would still be as hot today as it is if there were no expansions and only the base game? This is all hypothetical, just your opinion. I would say yes, but just because of the love that game generated for itself. I would say that it would not be as okay. hot. All right. I, I, would, I would say fair. Okay. And the reason why is because this game's been out for years. It's been on the top of the charts for so long. Since Steven frequently releases a new expansion, it's like, ooh, man, I was going to, you know, we've been playing this game a lot, but now it's kind of like going to start collecting dust. But hey, look, there's a brand new expansion. Let's go buy it like Turmoil that just came out and let's play the game some more. I can I can see where, no, it would still be just as popular, but I don't, it's not hurt it. There's no way these extra expansions have hurt it because we can look on the sell charts at Miniature Market, Tony. I mean, every time one of these expansions comes out, typically Miniature Market sells out of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I agree. So, But if you'll look at what the expansions are, they are all for these evergreen games or games that have been very, 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 very successful and suddenly... Bam, there, there's an expansion that shows up. But to your point, though, doesn't that make sense? If a game wasn't ex- successful, it's your flowchart. If a game wasn't successful, then why would an expansion come out? Hey, I don't think it should. That's what I'm saying. Unless the, it's got to be very successful. Let's go back to War Chess. Okay. Yes. Okay. There was an expansion to that. I can't tell you if War Chess was succe- successful. It should have been successful. It's a great game. And then an expansion came out and made it even a better game. And here's the thing. I think with the expansion come out, it brought a lot brought a lot of exposure back to that game where people may have not have played it in a while. And I said, oh, well, let's, let's pull War Chest off the shelf and try it again. I think from a marketing standpoint, expansions do make sense. And I think like, well, I can't remember the number. I, I've heard anywhere from three to 5,000 games coming out each year that if you can find that one, that if every once in a while you can just drop an expansion on just to keep it going a little bit longer, then why not? Another prime example, Empires of the North has Romans coming out from Portal Games. They just released recently the Japanese Islands. Now you've got Romans coming out, and then they're going to have, what, Barbarians coming out later this year. I think Ignacy has this plan of like, hey, here's this great base game. Don't forget about it. Remember? Well, here, how about this? Here's an expansion. Why don't you go get that base game out and play it a little bit more? And he's going to be making some more money because he's going to be selling the expansion too. So from the publisher standpoint, I can see where it's kind of a risk reward. You could release an expansion and nobody buys it. From a consumer standpoint, we got nothing to lose. But I also then thank you take Ignacy. Man's a shrewd businessman. He is leveraging on his success of Detective, Empires, and Imperial. Cry Havoc, Alien Artifacts. We loved Cry Havoc. They did an expansion for that, but I don't think there's going to be another. Why should there be? He needs to leverage those those three games that have been very, very successful for him. Again, I think that's logical sense. You leverage the ones that's most popular to put your resources into that because you pretty much figure they're going to sell pretty well. But overall, is an expansion necessary in today's market with 3,000 games coming out? Is there a reason to do it unless... So let's back that. Let's beep, 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 beep this truck going up. Let's think about it. Should the question be, an expansion is only necessary if a game is a success. Other than that, let's not even bother with it. That's probably a good point. I mean, you, you kicked off the segment talking about uh, Nate Bivens, our good friend who... A design Sunday split from Renegade Games. 
He said he already had the idea of an expansion in mind, but Renegade, this is kind of how they run their business. They'll do these uh, quick card games, these, you know, Twenty to thirty dollar card games do one run, sell through with them, then that's it. Now, if it's something super hot, they'll continually, you know, reprint and make more. A prime example: uh, one of their more popular card games was Fox in the Forest, and recently they came out with Fox in the Forest Duet. So they kind of it's not an expansion, but it's in that same uh, genre by the same people. But Renegade said, you know what? We can do just as well by we're going to do one print run of this game. And we'll make some money off of it. And then we'll just kind of move on to the next thing. But like you said, Tony, it probably is one of those things. If a card game did do really, really well, then then they probably would revisit an expansion. And I guess the reason why I bring this up is from the standpoint of there are some games I wish there were expansions for. There are some games that I wonder where my expansion is. Like um, I'm not throwing anything over at our buddies with Raccoon Tycoon. I'm waiting on my expansion. I'm excited to get that. It's a year later. I guess for me, to go back to your point, and my God, we are circling around here. We're in a holding pattern. But I will. Uh, Raccoon Tycoon has been shelved. It was being played a lot at the beginning of 2019. Haven't seen it since March, probably. Mm-hmm. And now when 2020 comes around, I'm going to get my expansion, which I kickstarted a while ago then it's going to come back out. But now the question is, will that expansion make me keep holding on and playing that game some more? Or now do I completely have buyer's remorse because the expansion was so late in coming out? Oh man, this is, this is almost stellar thinky. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the whole thing was, do you need expansion in today's gaming environment? I, I think one conclusion is if you have an evergreen game, to keep it evergreen, you better keep it fresh. Uh, like you mentioned with Pandemic, Carcassonne, Ticket to Ride. If you got something that's hot, keep riding it. Just keep dropping a product every so often. Just keep it in front of the customer's eyes. Like you said, you keep buying Ticket to Ride maps, right? Mm-hmm. We, talk about, we talked about Age of Steam last time. They keep dropping a map. They were dropping maps every so often, so you keep playing that game. I think for an evergreen game, I think it's critical. Yeah, I really do, and I think that's why Steven's done so well with Terraforming Mars. Yeah, he has a fantastic game, but he also knows, well, I just need to make sure this stays on people's tables. Hey, look, here's a new way to play it. Hey, here's a new way to play it, and he keeps that going. And then people will see that being played and make them go buy the base game, and then they go buy the you know expansions. That's how it stays in Evergreen. All right. Can I end this intelligent conversation? Was it ever intelligent? I don't think so. It, was, hey, it really wasn't. It was just kind of us rambling. Uh, which is what we do best. But this might be the last rambling you hear from me. Why is that? Because as you know, I'm getting ready to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. I'm getting to go on a cruise ship. I may never return. But it's not an Asian cruise ship. Uh, no, we're going to the North Sea. So I'll be doing that. But I did remind Donna of the time that they had to rescue the people from the North Sea in the helicopter lifts. Mm-hmm. And she was not happy about me reminding her of that. But when I return, I will be dressed to the nines for the squirrelies. That is absolutely correct. We have the squirrelies coming up. Hopefully next episode, we got to work out the logistics and everything. We got to make sure the hall is has been rented and we've got to make sure all the guests come in and everything like that. So we are in full squirrely mode force right now. Uh, that's right. Brown carpet. Squirrely mode force. Wow. How about squirrely award for? Squirrely force? 
we're squirrely. Hopefully our tried and true people come back and help us out with that. And the brown carpet has getting its steam cleaning out there mm-hmm. and pressure washing. So it's ready to go. Life is good from that standpoint. Now, I do want to do a, a PSA here, a, a public service announcement. Have you ever sure. had your have you had your shingles shot yet? Yes. You did. Good for you. I'm proud of you. I didn't know if you had done that. A lot of people don't get it. I, that's something you don't want to play with. It's free. Why not? Because it's, well, people think it's going to do something. Now, I will say this. I get a flu shot every year, and mm-hmm. it does not bother me. How did you react to the shingles shot? Didn't bother me. Oh, man. I got my, the first one I had and then got the booster shot. I was not good. <laughs> uh, Vanessa had a reaction. Well, a reaction's strong word. She, the second shot that she got. So sing, uh, shingles comes in two shots, mm-hmm. a first shot, and then you get a booster. Mm-hmm. The booster's the one that made her arm very red, and it was sore for quite a while. I had the shivers. And so I stood in Ooh. a shower for, it was at the hotel, so I was able to stand in the, I got it on my birthday, by the way. And that was my birthday present to me to get my booster shingles shot. And I stood in the shower for 30 minutes just trying to warm up. It was unreal. I was like, wow. I know. I've never had a, the first one I had, I had, I got, I wasn't feeling good either. But this second one, man, woo, I was a happy camper. And I mean, and I thought maybe it was because I went to the fish camp for my birthday, but it was the shingle shot that made me feel so bad. I'm glad you mentioned that because you you brought this up in our Slack channel for our Podge Pledge backers. We have a special Slack channel. People come in and chat and talk to us. And for just a measly, is it ten dollars? How much? Uh, I think it's a dollar. Maybe is it a dollar to get in? Yeah. Uh, you can go out to our PodPledge.com page. Not for much longer. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we'll have to make some some changes that coming up in the next few months. But anyway, you can you can get in and join our Slack channel. And Tony brought this up, and then people were like, "What is a fish camp?" And I was stunned by this, Tony, because I thought the term fish camp in the U.S. was kind of a universal thing of everybody has a fish camp around somewhere. I thought so too. I did not realize this, I, but I mean, I guess when you're going to a lobster broil or something, they don't call it a lobster camp. So for those who are wondering, it's like, well, what exactly is a fish camp? It is really just a a fish restaurant. That that's all it is. Uh, but it, where well, hold on, it's not a ha- Captain D's. Don't get confused here. This is no, it's not Captain D's. It's much better than that. So there's a lot of them around the beach. Like at Myrtle Beach, there's tons of them. Uh, you get some fresh fish. You can get fried fish. You know, broiled fish. Whatever kind of fish you want. But around here, we call the the term that we give them is called fish camps. And it's usually a large restaurant. You come in, it's usually decorated and everything like the beach or the coast or whatever. And you should sit down, and they bring you free hush puppies. And then you you order a fattening meal of fried fish and onion rings and French fries, and then you roll yourself out of there. And it's lovingly called fish camp. So when we brought that up in the Slack channel, people were like, what the heck are you guys talking about? So I did not know that is a local thing. I guess it's to the south, maybe southeast. And generally, I mean, if you Google it, they, just, they reference it, that it was a thing that was brought up around the... North Carolina, South Carolina, along the Catawba River, where camps would spring up after you go, I guess, fish, and then everybody bring in their haul, and you'd clean them and fry them up right there on the banks. I will say, I tell you, some of the best fried fish are when like these churches or Boy Scouts have fish fries. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Where you just go in there and they give you like like a styrofoam container with a couple pieces of fresh flounder or something or cat cat. Okay, so let me ask you. 
What's your favorite type of fried fish, like cod, catfish, flounder? When I order, it's always a flounder calabash shrimp plate, which calabash is a town in North Carolina. So it's flounder, 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 flounder. Catfish for me. It's way more meat on a catfish than there is a flounder fillet. Yeah, but I don't like picking the bones out. A catfish fillet. Okay. There's no bones in it. Okay. See, I'm used to getting the big, thick catfish. Oh, no, no, no. There's there's, there's, there's no bones in All this right, stuff. So you salt and pepper catfish? Yes. Salt and pepper catfish, baby. And yes, I know they're the bottom feeders of the lake. I get it. That's why they get fat. <laughs> and they cook up just as well as any other fish out there. That's true. Oh, But I will say one thing. If you go to a fish camp and all that grease, you might be rolling some dice. <laughs> Maybe you better grab a leaf, too, if you're playing our character from uh, the Incorrigible Party Cast. By the way, you need to go check that out. Tony and I will play the two-headed Ed and over there for their RPG, and we talked about wiping and, 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 taking, and taking names. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Remember to come back at next episode for our annual Squirrelly Awards. It's going to be an exciting time. If you want to, you can follow us on our social medias at Dyson Names on Twitter and on Instagram. Join our Facebook page and come and visit our BGG deal 1589. Yeah, Tony, we should probably play some more Brainwave so we can actually remember the names of the people that we play with instead of using fake names. They don't want to play that game because then they'll probably remember playing with us and they don't want to do that. We mentioned earlier in this episode about the new expansion Romans coming to Empires of the North from Portal Games and I am so excited because I absolutely love that game. We had Japanese islands, now we got Romans and I can't wait to play it. Oh, I can't either, Marty, because for my birthday I got new readers and I'll be able to see the cards. I'm so excited. Go check it out at portalgamesus.com or at your local game store.